0: You are listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church in Rainbow City, Alabama. More information about our church can be found online at www.12th.co. Now, I uh, had no idea we'd be where we are as a country. (laughs) Uh, Several, several months ago when we were praying through about where we should be in the Word on this day and for the next several weeks together, uh, there was no way we could know that, but the Lord does. He knows. Uh, He is not surprised by where we are as a nation, and he's also not surprised by where you are in your life and in your relationships. And I hope that this series, like it has led in my heart, will lead you to a place of repentance wherever the need arises. And I believe the Lord will bring some moments of that to all of us in various ways as we seek him in his word to be fashioning us according to the image of his son Jesus. And just like it's said up here on this little bumper video, we are gonna be looking at resolving conflict biblically over the next four weeks starting today. I hope you'll turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter five. We're gonna be looking at three different texts in Matthew today is our primary text. Uh, it's a lot of scripture, it's just jam-packed pieces out of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. Uh, there's a lot there. I want us to recognize a couple of things as we get going, though. The overarching statement that I'm going to give you for this whole series is going to lead us into our particular statement for today as we look in Matthew 5, 21 and on. Uh, I want you to see that um, I think God is going to, in fact, if I, I titled my sermon for myself today. I titled it Sucker Punch. That's what it feels like for me. It's a sucker punch. And uh, I think this is how it's going to feel to you or to some of you, uh, given where you might be in your relationships and let me give you this overarching statement, though. I didn't know until I was way, I mean, literally until last night after a ton of study throughout our time leading up to this. And last night, as I was putting the final touches on things, I always like to reference some guys that I trust and how they've preached a text, if they've gone through the same text. I didn't know until last night that uh, Tim Keller actually preached uh, a passage using the exact three texts I'm using today. Uh, not surprising he preached on the topic. I mean, you preach long enough, you're going to cover a lot of the same things somebody else does if you let the Word speak, Right. Um, but uh, what I will say is that something he stated really stuck with me, and I think it is a good summation of where we're headed for these four weeks in this series, and it's basically, I'll put it in my own words, using the three words at the end of what I got from Keller. Uh, The gospel of Jesus, the gospel of grace, always leads to radically altered relationships. It always leads to radically altered relationships. It is by nature what the gospel does. It is by nature who we become because it is radically altering that our Savior would even step out of eternity into our presence to save us who are and were his enemies. So the gospel of Jesus always leads to radically altered relationships. Let me give you the premise for today. The particular premise that we're going to look at and see through these three passages can be summed up in this statement, I believe, and it's very simple, it's almost a little too ethereal, so we're going to bring it down home in the passages we look at, but let me just state it out loud, that this gospel of grace, this gospel of grace must always lead us to be a people of great grace. This gospel of grace, this gospel of God's great grace for us, must always lead us to be a people of great grace. Grace. Let's look in the text together, Matthew five twenty one. Jesus is talking here, right? He's covering a bunch of different topics. And he says in verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool, or that word is raka, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and they remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, that's when Jesus says those words, he means listen up. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Father, we need your grace and kindness now. We need you to reveal your word to our hearts that so easily go back to being hearts encased in stone. So Lord, liberate our hearts to be able to hear rightly and be changed, that we might live out your grace, the grace you've shown us in the gospel of your son, Jesus, that we might live it out for your glory, for our own soul's good and for the good of those whom you've placed in our lives and that we might be the light of the gospel this world needs. And we ask that in Jesus' name, amen. Let's back up a little bit real quick and let's see. All these passages are gonna start off with something that's been said out of the Old Testament, but oftentimes has been tweaked into a negative by the teachers of this day and before. He says here, verse 21, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Now, that Text, you shall not kill, is what we kind of grew up with listening to the Ten Commandments. It does imply the actual word in Hebrew means more of the idea of murder. It It means to take a life in a way that is not okay with the Lord. And sometimes God has called for lives to be taken in the Old Testament. And even I believe in our lives where he says to protect those who are those in need of protection, like Psalm 82 talks about, uh, the, the, child, the child who doesn't have a father, protect them. Sometimes you have to step up for others and do things you normally would not do. And I do believe God is not pleased when someone's life is taken, but sometimes those are hard moments where I do believe that it's okay to do so. But here he's talking about murder. You shall not murder. And if you murder, you'll be liable to judgment. And Jesus says, but I say to you, that's what Jesus does, right? He takes it to the heart. It's not just this outward thing. You go, okay, well, good. I've never murdered anybody. I'm good. He says, no, no, no. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. It's a big statement. He says, everyone who has insult, insulted his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, a slanderous statement, will be liable to the hell of fire. It's pretty strong statements. If you've ever done these things, let me ask the question, say it like this. Do you think you're a murderer? According to Jesus, all of us are. We are all murderers in the eyes of the Lord. That's one of the big things about the gospel. In In order to understand the gravity of salvation, you must understand your great need for salvation. And our great need is based upon our great sin. And we may think, well, I've never done this or that or this or that, but Jesus takes it to the heart and he says, you're a murderer if you've ever been angry with your brother, if you've ever insulted your brother, if you've ever slandered your brother. These are big statements. And look what happens right after this. He takes it into a new level. He says, so if you are offering your gift, verse 23, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, these are the commands, leave your gift there before the altar, here's the next one, and go, it's a command, and he says another one, first be reconciled to your brother and then come, and here's a command, offer your gift. He then says, come to terms quickly, another command, come to terms quickly with your accuser. So I'm gonna give you four points today. One from the first passage, one from the second passage, two from the third. And this first point today I really want you to hang on to that breaks down this idea of how the gospel of grace must always lead us to be a people of great grace. Here's that first point. Your anger toward a person always impedes your personal worship. Your anger towards a person always impedes your personal worship. This is just truth. He says it here. Why do you think he says, so if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. It's because it impedes your worship. We can't rightly worship our creator, our savior, unless we have reconciled with our brother if we are angry with him, if we've slandered him, if we've insulted him. We cannot rightly worship with our hearts that way. We think we can. We are dualistic people. We think that we can do something and say something and they be opposite and it's okay. We like like to think that, don't we? We do it all the time. We tell our kids, this is how we sum it up. We say, don't do as you see me do, do as I say, right? This is how we live. We think it's okay to do that, but it is not okay if you go back and read Homework It. Go back and read Isaiah 1, 10 and on. You'll see very quickly that God is not okay with that kind of worship. He talks to them, he says, you raise your hands, but they're covered in blood. Murderers, right? He says, I will not hear your prayers. It always impedes our worship when we have anger in our hearts toward someone. So if you're angry towards your brother, it is your responsibility to go and be reconciled to your brother immediately. Now, sometimes I would say, sometimes that person has done something that they have no idea what they did to you, you don't have to go and drudge that up. They have no idea. You know, like say that they said something to you that you took offense and you know they probably didn't even understand what they said to you or they didn't do something you thought they should do but you know that they really did anything wrong but it's in your heart, you're having trouble. That's a you issue. I don't mean you have to go to them then because really you shouldn't bring up to everybody every little thing that, that you think they've done or everybody's gonna hate to see you come, right? Right? <laughs> but if you believe that there's an issue and you have anger and you can't get over it, you might need to go to them because that helps reconcile. Look, most of the time when we are angry at somebody, when we go and sit down and talk to them face-to-face, what we recognize is that sometimes, I'll say sometimes, a lot of the time, what we have anger in our heart about was misconstrued by what we saw through our own eyes or heard through our own ears. And we see that their motives, it's really hard to think somebody's totally an evil person, like, you know, compared to yourself who's perfect, when you sit down and listen to them. It's really hard to do that. So this is why we need to go and make sure we reconcile with our brothers and sisters. Remember that we forgive as we've been forgiven, right? We reconcile as God has reconciled us, even his enemies, with the perfect sacrifice of his perfect son. We sinners can then forgive as we've been forgiven. It's that simple, but it is not easy. Let me say it this way. This might hit us a little differently. Reconciling your relationship with your brother or sister is a prerequisite to your offering worship to God. It's a prerequisite. I'll say it a different way. Reconciling your relationship with your brother or sister or your refusal to reconcile is actually a litmus test of your being reconciled to God. Do you hear that? You think that's crazy. Look at the text. Verse 25, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you were going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now, what's he talking about there? He's given a court illustration, but I think it's greater than just that. And why do I think that? Because you go back up to verse 23 and it says, "Um, but I say to you that everyone who's angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool, That's what we say in our hearts, right? We'll be liable to the hell of fire. And then look at verse 26 again. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. And if you don't understand theologically what I'm talking about when we talk about hell, we will never be able to pay the price for our sin. Therefore we never get out. So come to terms quickly to make sure that doesn't happen to you, right? In other words, if you are angry or offended at someone, it is not their responsibility to come to you. They may not even know that they have offended you. They may not have really even done anything to offend you. But if you're angry or offended with someone and you can't get over, it, it's your responsibility to seek them out. It's my responsibility to seek them out if I'm angry or offended at someone in that way. The gospel of grace must always lead us to be a people of great Grace. That's who we're meant to be. We've been shown much grace, and much grace we must be giving. Look at Matthew thirty eight five thirty eight. Matthew five thirty eight. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, Jesus says, and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Pause right there for a second. Let's back this up. That is an Old Testament quote, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but let me give you what's behind that law. The reason, what it seems like as you read Scripture, the reason that law is there was not to enable retaliation. It was to make sure that any disciplinary action or any punitive action against someone was not too great for what had happened that they had done wrong. You see? It was to show... Mercy by making sure we don't over punish someone for what they've done wrong In other words, so if they gouged out an eye, they get their eye gouged out. You don't cut off their head If they bruise someone's foot, you don't cut the foot off. You bruise their foot You do like response to like action. That's the old testament idea But see back in jesus time they'd actually twisted that around the teachers of the day were basically saying yeah, yeah, yeah retaliate You have got it to this far you can go That is, Jesus is saying that's not that's not at all what was being talked about. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. And you may think, well, not everybody's evil, yeah. But the one that you're mad at, the one that you're angry at, they're evil in your heart, right? Otherwise, how could you be so mad at them? If you saw them as the person who wasn't evil, had been redeemed by grace, it'd be hard to be so mad at them. So he says, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. People say, that's too much. I can't do that. Yeah, we can, according to the gospel, according to what Jesus commands us. He doesn't command us to do things we cannot do. But by the power of the Spirit, it can be done. Let's break it down what he means by this, though. Look at these statements. you got to understand, in the context, go back to how to study the Bible, right? In the context, just read and understand the context. So you look in your study Bible, you read an old book about what was going on in the biblical times around this, read a good commentary. You should, you should if you're really studying the Bible, you should probably seek to begin a library where you take one good commentary for each book of the Bible as you're studying it. If you can fork out the money. If not, find them cheap and used online. I buy most of my books used. That's my staff. When I buy books for our staff to read together, I pay two or three bucks. I don't pay the $15 if I can help it? Sorry, publishers. Look at this text. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. You see, that was a great insult. Back then, just like it would be today, right? We know it would be. Here's what they would do. They would right-handed back-slap a backhanded slap to the face on the right cheek to insult you. It happened to Jesus at the trial. He was hit. It's an insult. It's demeaning. It's meant to be. And he's saying, if somebody does that to you, turn the other cheek to them. And what does that mean? We'll get to that in a second. Look at the next one. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. So the tunic was multiple layers of dress. Back in that day, most of the guys... Would be wearing a tunic, which is kind of like an, an undergarment in a sense, underneath a cloak. It's a, it's your, it's an outer layer, okay? But it's, it's a, a like a, a shirt per se, and the cloak would be your big jacket now. In the Old Testament, it talked about how you could take a guy's tunic punitively, but you were not to take his cloak. The cloak is what he would use to to cover up with at night, not to freeze to death. It's the thing that kept him warm. That's the thing you couldn't take. In fact, if you did take it during the day, you had to give it back to him at night. That was the rule in the Old Testament. If you go back and read Leviticus, Deuteronomy, those areas. And so this right here, he's saying, if somebody comes and sues you to take your tunic, give them your cloak. People would have been gasping at that statement from Jesus. We never give her a cloak. That's what you should do. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. You see, the Roman army would come through and force, basically get people into their work. That Hey, you, you live here. You come help us carry this stuff. Go one mile. That was kind of the rule. You only make you go one mile with this stuff for the army. He said, if somebody forces you to go a mile, you go two. That's where we get our phrase. We all know that go the extra mile, right? He said, if somebody forces you to do something, you can take it further even. He says, give to the one who begs from you. and Do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. So people ask me, you may not, don't, you don't have to give them everything you have, but give them something. Even if it's a word of encouragement, a word of grace, a prayer over them. Give them something that you can give them. Get a little bit of money, whatever it is. We see that uh, Augustine helps us to understand this. I think he puts that last part in context when he notes. He says, give to everyone that asks, not give everything to him that asks. Give to everyone. Everyone that asks, not give everything to him that asks, right? But give, be generous. Craig Blumberg, great guy to read, by the way, from New American Commentary, he writes this about all these commands. He says, each of these commands requires Jesus' followers to act more generously than what the letter of the law demanded. You see that? All these negative things, don't do this, don't be angry with your brother, right? He talks about, don't be angry but don't retaliate. They all have the positive flip side. He says, each of these commands requires Jesus' followers to act more generously than what the letter of the law demanded. Going the extra mile has rightly become a proverbial expression and captures the essence of all of Jesus' illustrations. Not only must disciples reject all behavior motivated only by a desire for retaliation, but they also must positively work for the good of those with whom they would otherwise be at odds. You hear that? So not only don't retaliate, but work for the good of those you would otherwise be at odds with. Serve them. Be generous toward them. This is a picture of the gospel. Jesus, who created all things for his glory, and we who rob him of that glory by placing it on ourselves or somewhere else, he should destroy us in a moment. Instead, he came to save us by dying on the cross for us in our place. He should retaliate, rightly so, justifiably, but instead what does he do? He becomes generous with us. Great grace of the gospel of Jesus. The truth is, your being forgiven, truly forgiven, will always lead you to outgiving, to outgiving others. Let me say it like this. This is number two point of this passage if you've been redeemed by the gospel of grace, you've given up your right to retaliate. The positive side would say, if you've been redeemed by the gospel of grace, you have been saved in order to be generous. God's gospel of grace always leads us to greater generosity for his great glory. And when you were greatly insulted, You will then respond with grace if you're walking in the Spirit. So let me say it this way for us. Here's our problem, right? The real problem is it's hard to do that when people offend us because our pride monster comes out, right? I'll just speak for myself. My pride monster comes out when people offend me. If y'all don't want to shake your heads, I'll just do it for you. My pride monster comes out when I'm offended. Who do they think they are? They're being a fool if they think I'm going to respond this way. Right, Raka, there it is again. I'm not gonna listen, I'm not gonna do that. I'm not gonna let them get away with that. That's ridiculous. They can't treat me like that. They can't ask me to do this thing. But I think this text is telling us, it's it's saying to us, let us sacrifice our pride on the altar of God's grace. Let us pick up our cross and follow Jesus the one who should be prideful, Jesus, humbled himself to the point of death. Let us become like him, especially in the difficult moments. Turn the other cheek to the one who insults you for the sake of their soul and the glory of our Redeemer. Give generously to those who desire to take from you, showing them the grace of Jesus who so generously gave us his own life. Go the extra mile with those who demand it from you, just as Jesus went infinitely further than any could ever be asked or expected to do. Some have called it the greatest step from eternity into our world. That he would come and live as one of us and live the life we cannot live and die the death that we deserve so that we could be brought into the family of God, even while we were his enemies. He stepped out to bring us grace and mercy. Give to those who beg from you, for we can never outgive God's grace toward us in Jesus. Remembering that God has given everything for you. Everything means Jesus. And Jesus gave up everything to bring us home. And let us be like that with our brothers and sisters, with the lost. Let's leave it all in the field. Let us be used up when Jesus returns. Not for self, but for his glory. You've heard me say before, the question I ask my kids all the time, especially as they're arguing. Nobody likes it when you're in the middle of it. Hey, what's more important, people or things? I think Jesus is saying people. I'll say it this way, more rightly with the text. What's more important, our pride or the people for whom Jesus died. What's more important, our pride or the people for whom Jesus died. Let us humble ourselves like Jesus. Let us reconcile with our brother and sister like Jesus. Let us die to self like Jesus because the gospel of grace always leads us to be a people of great grace like Jesus. Matthew 5, 43. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. By the way, that's not a Bible quote. First half is, second half is not. That's what was being taught. He doesn't say, you've heard it said of old. He doesn't say that here. He says, this is a current thing in Jesus' time. He says, you've heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. It never says in the Bible, hate your enemy. But he says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. So that, here's the reason, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. So you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is our role. If you've been saved, number three, if you've been saved by the gospel of grace, you will actively love your enemies like your father and brother have loved you. Your brother, I mean, capital B, Jesus. If you have been saved by the gospel, you will actively love. There's no such thing as loving without action. We can tell somebody we love you. Tell your spouse you love them all day long, but you don't actively love them, they will not believe you because it is probably not true. I'll say it like this, if you've been saved, you will sacrificially seek the personal welfare of those who persecute and offend you. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. This active love is commanded, it's a command, love. It's a command in the Greek, it's very clear, it's an imperative. It's an active love commanded by your savior, Jesus telling us to do it. Who are we to deny him who loved us even while we were his enemies? Let me say this, brothers and sisters, you cannot love someone this way without engaging your entire heart. You cannot hold back a little piece of bitterness and love the way Jesus is commanding. It does not work. He says earlier, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. What he means by that is blessed are those who are singularly focused on loving God because he first loved us and loving neighbor as yourself. The gospel of grace must always lead us to be a people of great grace. That fourth piece says, if you believe in the gospel of Jesus, you will pray for those who persecute you. This is gonna lead us back to the love part. This is really crazy. This could change your life. This could change your life. I've been practicing it now for several years. It has changed my life. This could really change your life. It's very simple, but it is not easy. But man, the Lord always, always, always responds in answering these prayers. See, Jesus commands us to pray for those who come against us. Just like Jesus prayed for us in John 17, who would come against him, who would be sinners, trying to rob him of his glory. He prayed in John 17, 20 and 23, talking about those who have not yet become his, that's us. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory you've given me, I've given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, I mean, unified, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you have loved me. You see, this prayer is going to lead us As we pray this to become the the light of the gospel that will shine in the darkness of Etowah County and beyond. This is why people will come to faith. Because we will love one another the way Christ has loved us. If we cannot do that, we will never be the light of the gospel that we need to be in this darkness. We must love one another in this way. And it is hard. But it begins, I believe, even though it's second in order here. I think it begins when we don't feel it and we don't actively do it by praying for one another. We have to pray in these ways. And here's why. Prayer changes our hearts and thus changes our actions toward others. Syrian Kierkegaard Kierkegaard, which I wouldn't say, actually, I listen to everything he has written, read everything he's written and agree with it. He did say this, I think it's right on, prayer does not change God, but it changes him who prays. Prayer does not change an unchanging God, but it changes him who prays. This is what I find to be the most truthful in my own prayer life. So you may be saying, I don't know how to pray for that person that's, that's done that to me. I don't, you don't know what they've done to me. And you're right, I don't. God does. You don't, know, you don't know how they put me through this. You don't know that all this, 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 this thing, I can't, I can't pray for them like that. I'm not telling you you have to know how to pray for them. What I'm telling you is you have a Holy Spirit. If, you're, if you've been saved, you have a Holy Spirit that lives within you who will intercede on your behalf if you'll bow your head to the Father for them. Romans 8, 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. Brothers, we are weak. The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So here's what you can do. Here's the the prayer that has changed my life. You can pray like this. God, fill me with the love I know you have for this brother or sister. Fill me with the love I know you have For this brother or sister, the same love that drove you to send your one and only son, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the beautiful, the infinitely valuable, the glorious, that drove you to send him to his death for their souls. Fill me with that love. Put it in my heart to love them like that. You can give me that love because you love them that way and you can pour out your love into my heart. The gospel of grace must always lead us to be a people of great grace. And when you pray a prayer like that, he will honor your prayer. You may not like it at first. You'll still want to fight it. But he will break your heart for them. And that will open up a doorway to restoration and reconciliation. Let us seek the Lord for his glorious grace as he has created us and saved us to be ministers of reconciliation. This is our purpose. This is our calling. This is our command from the Lord. Here's the litmus test, verse 47. It's gonna drive it home to the heart. If you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? If you just love those, who are easy to love, your own cliques, right? That word greet means to gladly accept their presence with great hospitality listen to this, to greet someone like that means to gladly accept their presence with great hospitality. This is the litmus test to know if you're actually living and walking by the Spirit in this truth. Just as we, enemies of God, have been gladly accepted into the loving arms of our Father, a Father who looked on the horizon. We see the story, remember the story? The prodigal son? looking on the horizon, looking for his son to arrive. The one who had asked for his inheritance, saying, I wish you were dead, Dad. Give me my money, I'm out. Taking off, going and squandering it away. Cheap, fast living. And at his bottom, he comes back to the father, thinking about how he's going to ask the father to forgive him. Instead, the father is looking on the horizon to find him coming. Every day, he sees him coming and he runs to him. He embraces him. He kisses him, doesn't let him talk. He clothes him in his cloak of righteousness. He puts his ring on his finger saying, you're my son. It's all yours. He calls everybody to a party. He kills a fatted calf. He celebrates just like heaven erupts when one comes to the Lord. Same father has accepted you and me like that. Looking for us, wooing us, calling us by his spirit. Yearning for us. Even more so, sending his son to come and get us. And if we walk by a brother or sister and can't even look at them, there's something wrong. If we see someone coming and we want to duck the other way, I'm talking about me. There's something wrong. If we can't accept their presence with great hospitality, We need to repent, brothers and sisters. Let us repent of our sin and be formed into the image of Christ. Let us be made different for the sake of the glory of his gospel, to go forth from this place like a beacon of light to the hopeless, to the hurting, to the dead, so that his life-giving gospel can go forth with us when we speak it. Because if we do not live this out, they will never listen to us. They will know us by the way we love one another. That's what Jesus tells us. Let us repent today. Let us reconcile today for His glory, for our joy, for the family, for the sake of the lost. The gospel of grace must always lead us to be a people of great gospel, Jesus-centered grace because the gospel always leads to radically altered relationships. Father, we need you now. We need your grace. We need your kindness poured out on us. You have already done so, so greatly right now, Father. But even now, I ask that your spirit would search our hearts. You reveal our areas we need to repent. You would change us even now. You give us the strength we do not have. You give us the fortitude that is only found in the person of your son, Jesus, that we would lean into him and find strength in him. We'd find the boldness that comes only by your spirit, and that we would pursue those who we feel have offended us, that we would reconcile with them so that we may worship you rightly and bring them back together, that we might greet them with the joy that you have shown us, and that Jesus might be lifted high in everything we do, especially in our repenting. let the world around us see it. Those to whom we've talked to, that we've shared our frustrations, let us repent before them. Let us point to the gospel of your son Jesus. Let us not just speak down to others, but let us put our lives on display that the gospel might be shown valiantly. The gospel might be shown remarkably beautiful as we confess our sin before others. Point to the goodness found in your son, Jesus. We need you, Father. You have blessed us over and over and over and over. There's so many reasons to worship you this morning, Lord, but we have an ultimate reason now to worship you because you have reconciled us and now you've called us to the ministry of reconciliation. Let that be our reason for lifting your name this morning. Let that be our reason for shining the light of the glory of Christ as we leave. And let you be magnified in our words, in our actions, in our hearts. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the sermon audio from 12th Street Baptist Church. Feel free to share this with anyone you meet. And we pray that this sermon helped you to be more like Jesus, as 12th Street seeks to be a place where we can find forgiveness for the past and hope for the future.